Good to see you all. God bless you. Good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 1? If you're new with us, we welcome you this morning and uh, want to let you know we have recently started a study in the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. And as we have already seen, the first 18 verses of John's Gospel form an introduction, a doctrinal statement really, on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And starting with verse 19, John's Gospel takes the form of a narrative where he now begins to you know, recount for us the life and ministry of Jesus. And as such, the first person that John the Apostle chooses to begin his narrative with is John the Baptist. And uh, as we've already pointed out, John the Baptist was the prophesied forerunner or herald of the Messiah. The two most famous scriptures on this come out of uh, the Old Testament, of course, Malachi 3, verse 1, where God said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And then in Isaiah 40, verse 3, He will be a voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, starting with verse 19 and running through the end of chapter 1, I've organized the chapter around three main points. First of all, the inquisition of the Jews. Secondly, the introduction of John. And thirdly, the invitation of Jesus. Now, by way of review, we looked at the first one last time, the inquisition of the Jews. Let's just take a running start at this this morning and Look at verse 19. Now, this is the testimony of John, John the Baptist, when the Jews, and again, remember, when John the Apostle in his gospel mentions the Jews, that's a term for the Jewish leadership or the Sanhedrin. That would be the Jewish high council. They really ran the country. And so um, when the Jewish leadership, is the idea, sent uh, priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So... John's ministry has created quite a stir. I mean, people from all over uh, the country, and maybe even beyond Israel, were coming to hear him. He had, was the first prophet in 400 years. All of a sudden now there's a voice in the wilderness crying, basically, thus says the Lord. Nobody had heard that for 400 years in Israel. After Malachi, God went off the air, you might say. He went silent. So now, John's out there in the wilderness he, uh, he, so many people are coming that he uh, uh, finally gets the attention of the leadership in Jerusalem. And so they send a delegation of priests and Levites out to ask him, well, who are you? Now look, understand that this was not really a polite question, so to speak. It was more along the lines of a religious inquisition. You see, they wanted to know who John was, what he had to say for himself. And we know from history that at that time in Israel's history, uh, the expectation of coming Messiah was very high. Probably due to the prophecy of Daniel 9.25, you can read that in your own. But there was a real messianic fever at this time. People expected the Messiah to show up at any moment. So when they went out to ask John, who are you, he knew what they were thinking. Without even having to ask him directly, he says in, in the Greek, it's emphatic, who are you? I'm definitely not the Messiah, is what he basically said. So with that out of the way, these religious leaders then continued to interrogate John, verse 21. They asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? 
And he answered, no. From these questions, it's obvious they were looking for one of three people. We looked at this last time. First of all, the Messiah. Secondly, they were looking for Elijah. And the third person they, was looking, they were looking for was an unnamed prophet they simply referred to as the prophet. Now, last week we talked about why they were looking for those three, especially we understand the Messiah, but Elijah and this unnamed prophet, why were they looking for these guys? You can go online, get the tape, or get the tape. Well, dating, I'm dating myself. <laughs> Pull out your reel-to-reel. You can go online and listen, all right? Good Lord. Um, well, we talked about this last week. So verse 22, then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an account to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, guys, I don't know what these leaders were thinking. I just know that John has just basically told them, Who are you? I am the one God prophesied was going to come before the Messiah. I would imagine that would have been a pretty momentous revelation. You'd think they would have said, Wow, where's the, the Messiah's coming? They, they got all excited. They, they Amazingly, they seemed to just brush over the thing, just ignore what he said. Verse 25, they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now, here they just flat out challenged John's authority to baptize anyone, since he was not one of the spiritual leaders they were looking for, nor since the Sanhedrin hadn't authorized John to baptize in their name and authority, to which he just simply responds by saying, verse 26, Look, I baptize with water, but there's one, there's, there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who is coming. Uh, it is, uh, excuse me, it is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. You know, John's basically saying, he's saying, guys, look, don't make me the focus, all right? I'm not the issue. Remember we talked about a few weeks ago that John was content to be simply a finger pointing, behold the Lamb of God? He didn't want to draw any attention to himself. He wasn't looking for notoriety. He wasn't looking to make a name for himself, you know, a hotshot preacher out in the wilderness. John simply said, look, don't make me the issue. The Messiah is the issue. Even though I'm older than him, even though I started my ministry before him, he's preferred before me in that not only is he Messiah, he's the Son of God. And so focus on him. Would to God we had more preachers and uh, pastors today who didn't make themselves the focus. We got too many celebrity pastors in the church today. Guys strutting around on stage, you know, acting like they own the place, you know, theatrical, you know, loving to hear themselves talk. John was not that kind of a guy. He simply wanted to point people to Jesus, and that's the way it should be. And that's one of the reasons God used him so mightily. But it says in verse 28, These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Guys, let me stop here and talk about baptism for a moment, and then we'll continue in the narrative. The English word baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo, which simply means to immerse. Now, the word was never translated into the English. They simply transliterated it, the word baptizo, into the word baptize. So it really isn't a translation. It's just a transliteration. 
In fact, from what I understand today, uh, the word is still used in Greece, baptizo, uh, often in terms of being you know, overwhelmed emotionally with regard to some issue or problem. They will say, I'm overwhelmed, baptizo, I'm baptizo, overwhelmed with problems today. Or in other words, I'm immersed or drowning in my problems. Now, interestingly, that's kind of the way Jesus used it uh, in Luke 12, 50, when he said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it's accomplished. And at this point, he was talking about the cross, of course. He was getting closer and closer to the cross, and the more he did, the more he was just immersed in his mission, which was to die for the sins of the world, which, by the way, I'm convinced, and we'll talk about this more in John's Gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, although he was not looking forward to the pain of crucifixion, I think what really scared him, what really made him um, very, uh, very uh, troubled was the fact that for the first time in eternity at all, eternity passed, when he hung on that cross and became sin for us, he was going to be separated from his father. Something we have no concept to really understand. We'll try to do our best to explain it when we get there. But again, the, uh, in the New Testament, the most common way the word baptizo uh, is used was in relation to the immersion of a person in water, i.e. water baptism. However, there are other baptisms mentioned in the New Testament. I'll just give you a flavor of this. There's, there's six of them, actually. I'll just read you three, I think. Uh, first of all, there's the baptism of suffering. Uh, you remember that um, at one point, uh, uh, James and John, uh, well, they wanted to sit one on Jesus' right hand and the other on his left in the kingdom. But they were too afraid to ask Jesus themselves, so they sent their mom. Uh, <laughs> two tough guys. Uh, you know, Mama, will you ask him? We're afraid. So he goes, she goes, you know, Jewish mothers are notorious for being, you know, for their sons, right? So she goes and asks the Lord if her boys can sit one on his right hand, one on his left in his kingdom. And uh, he uh, turns to James and John. He said in Matthew 20, verse 23, he said, you will indeed drink. He said to them, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink from and be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? He's talking about his suffering at the cross, really. And uh, they said, oh, yeah, we're able. <laughs> Clueless. No, no idea what they were talking about, you know. He said to them, well, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am, am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. So the baptism of suffering. Also, we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus said uh, in Acts 1, 5, for John, John the Baptist, truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, we'll talk about that more next time. So I won't say any more about it, but it's called the baptism in or with the Holy Spirit. Very important concept that John alludes to uh, next in, later in, as we progress in chapter 1. Then we have the baptism of judgment. Judgment. In Matthew 3, verses 11 and 12, the Pharisees and scribes, this parallels what we just read in John chapter 1. The Pharisees and scribes came out to ask John, who are you? And... Um, basically challenged his authority to baptize anybody. And he said, indeed, I baptize you with water unto repentance. But he, was he who is coming after me is mightier than I, um, 
whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Again, Acts 1.5, talk about that next time. And with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The wheat are true believers. The chaff are unbelievers. And when he talks about he will baptize them with fire, that's judgment. And I'm thinking ultimately it will find its fulfillment. And when people are cast into the lake of fire, immersed into this judgment for all eternity. I just want you to understand something, though. That the Jews practiced a form of baptism before Christianity. Before Christianity. Before they would go into the temple to worship, they would undergo a ritual purification in a special cleansing pool or bath known as a mikvah. And they would immerse or baptize themselves, actually, in, themselves into this cleansing pool, washing off the dirt from their bodies, which would symbolize, symbolize, of course, a purification from sin and all outward defilements. And then they were considered ceremonially clean and could go in and worship the Lord in the temple. Now, in the New Testament times, if people wanted to convert to Judaism, if they want to proselytize to Judaism, they went through a ceremonial washing referred to as baptism. We have to be careful, guys, to note that the baptism of John was not Christian baptism. It was not Christian baptism, but a baptism connected with Israel and its acceptance of their Messiah. You see, in Christian baptism, we identify with our Lord Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. That's why when we, and of course baptism means to immerse, that's why when we baptize folks, we go down to the pool here, and we take them and we dip them backwards, you know, kind of into the water, uh, into all signifying death and burial. And when they come up out of the water, it signifies new life in Christ, resurrection life, okay? We do that after a person receives Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, right? You get saved, and then we baptize you. Well, John baptized before Messiah's coming, before they received Messiah. His was not um, Christian baptism. It was more along the lines of a, uh, of a uh, ceremonial cleansing using the Jordan River as a giant mikvah kind of a thing, okay? But um, I want you to understand that Christian water baptism does not in any way wash us of our sins nor is it necessary a necessary part of salvation what some have called baptismal regeneration regeneration in my mind is salvation some define it a little differently but the idea behind baptismal regeneration is that water baptism is essential for salvation so in other words you believe in christ and then you're baptized in water and that you know makes sure that now you're saved but you have to be baptized in water besides believing in Jesus Christ. I don't believe that. Uh, I don't think most evangelicals believe that. I know um, most, if not all, of the mainline denominations believe in a form of baptismal regeneration. But we believe, as evangelical Christians, um, that water baptism simply acts as an outward sign symbolizing the washing away of our sins, right, to the blood of Christ, and again, then we get baptized, you know, because, uh, excuse me, uh, because th th we, it represents the fact that Jesus Christ has washed us of our sins, and through the baptismal process, we, we uh, symbolize the uh, death and burial of the old life, and now the resurrection life in Christ, the new life.
But uh, I want to just say this. Again, water baptism is a sign of the new covenant, just like a wedding ring is a sign of the marriage covenant. And just like a wedding ring is not essential for marriage, neither is water baptism essential for salvation. Now, not everybody agrees with that, but let me tell you why I don't believe water baptism is essential for salvation. And I'm not going to get into a big debate on it, but I'm just going to tell you where I'm coming from, all right? You remember the thief that, one of the thieves that were hanging on the cross next to Jesus uh, when he was dying, okay? And at one point, he engages one of the thieves who acknowledges he's a sinner, deserves to die, and acknowledges Jesus as Lord, asking him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. In other words, he was acknowledging, he was, he was acknowledging that he was a sinner, and he accepted that Christ was Lord, all right? And that simple faith saved him. We know it saved him because Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. So we know he was saved, right? Was he water baptized? No. You tell the Roman government, can I get down for a minute and get baptized and I'll get back? No, obviously not, but he was saved. Remember in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas were in Philippi preaching and through a series of events, everyone got upset with them. The, uh, the authorities came, arrested Paul, Silas, threw him into the dungeon and um, at one point, the jailer comes and falls at Paul's feet and says, you know, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what did Paul say to him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He didn't say believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized and you shall be saved. One of the most succinct presentations of the gospel, in a sense, is found in, uh, in Romans 10, verse 9 where Paul simply says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, or that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And again, nothing is mentioned about water baptism. And then in my mind, the greatest testimony against baptismal regeneration comes from the mouth of Paul the Apostle himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Why don't you turn there? Now, let me give you the back, background. As Paul was writing to the Corinthians, this church was very carnal. They had a lot of problems going on. One of it was they, they, they liked to divide themselves into kind of like party lines in a sense, okay? In other words, whoever baptized them, whether it be, you know, Apollos or Peter or someone else, that became, that, that became the, the person that they kind of rallied behind, all right? Hey, Peter baptized me. Oh, I was baptized by Apollos. He's the intellectual, you know, that kind of thing. And Paul was nauseated by the whole thing. And he wrote him back and said, look, he said, I thank God, verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Verse 17 is the critical verse. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, notice how Paul separates water baptism from the gospel, indicating that they were separate and distinct things that were not working together to secure a person's salvation. I mean, if water baptism was essential for salvation, look, it would be part of the gospel, part of the gospel message. 
In other words, if water baptism was essential, then Paul would have preached it as part of the gospel. He said, look, God didn't send me to baptize anybody in water. I have baptized a few, but that's not why he sent me to preach the gospel. Well, if water baptism was essential for salvation, it would be part of the gospel message. Part of the gospel message. I mean, Paul would have never said the Lord didn't send me to baptize. <laughs> okay? I mean, being the quintessential evangelist that Paul was. I mean, if Paul had believed that water baptism was essential for salvation, I mean, he would have rushed people. As soon as they said, you know, amen to receiving Christ as their Lord, he would have rushed them down to the river and thrown them into the water to seal the deal. Lest perhaps, God forbid, they should die between, you know, praying the prayer of salvation and not getting water baptized. You better believe he would have rushed them right down to the river and tossed them in because in his mind, you got to get water baptized again to seal the deal kind of a thing. Look, that's not to say that water baptism isn't important. And sometimes we evangelicals, because we don't believe it's necessary for salvation, we think it's unimportant. That, that's not true either. It became part of the command that Jesus left his church before ascending back to his heavenly Father. Turn to Matthew 28. Now, of course, this is after Jesus rose from the dead. He's commissioning his disciples, the Great Commission, we call it. Uh, he does it before he ascends back to the Father. And in Matthew 28, verse 19, we read, He said to them, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Notice he says, you know, go, he talks about going, baptizing, and teaching, that they're all essential elements of the disciple-making process. Now look, we can see how, you know, we can see the importance of evangelism and teaching, uh, and teaching and making disciples. But why does Jesus include the act of water baptism in this process of making disciples? I mean, again, what is the purpose of water baptism in the Christian life? Well, as I just said, one of the, re, uh, the purposes is that it acts as an outward sign of the new covenant. Now look, a sign points to something. That's what its purpose is. And water baptism is a public sign that points to our relationship with Jesus. Listen, that we now belong to him. However, water baptism not only speaks of our belonging to Jesus, that's the obvious one, it also speaks of us belonging to one another. Something that's not always obvious to people. We not only belong to Jesus, that's why we get water baptized, there's a sign pointing to that reality, but that we also now belong to each other. We now belong to the body of Christ, right? The church. Look, as Christians, we're called to belong, not just to believe. We belong to the family of God. Again, we're members of the body of Christ. I mean, water baptism is not only a symbol of salvation, it's a symbol of our oneness with other believers in Christ. This is important, all right? As Paul said in Romans 12, verse 5, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. That's a very important reality, okay? That we have not only just a theoretical oneness, Okay, people that uh, belong to the local Rotary Club, uh, they feel one with each other. But it's a theoretical oneness, not an actual oneness. 
we are actually joined to each other through the Holy Spirit, who is the central nervous system of the body of Christ. We are the cells, you might say. It's all Christ's body. We are really one with each other in a very mystical and spiritual way that a lot of Christians don't seem to understand uh, in many ways. One pastor put it this way, something I quote, It not only declares a person's allegiance to Jesus, but also their acceptance into the body of Christ. It says to the world, this person is now one of us. We have fellowship with each other. And so, guys, Jesus' disciples took this command to baptize converts in water very seriously. And as soon as the Holy Spirit came on the Feast of Pentecost, Acts 2, uh, you know, like a mighty rushing wind, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and Peter stood up and preached the first Spirit-filled message of the church age. And it says 3,000 men were converted. They didn't count women and children. They let them 15 or 20,000 people got saved that first day, that first message, all right? And they baptized them all in water, signifying they took the Lord's commands very seriously, and they went ahead and baptized these new converts in water. And let me just say this, as they took... The Lord's command to be baptized seriously, so should we. So should we. There are Christians who for, whatever, who for whatever reason have not been baptized yet, and you've been Christians for a while. And uh, the time has come. You need to get baptized in water because it wasn't until Jesus was baptized in water that the Holy Spirit came upon him, right? Um, there's something about water baptism that says, Lord, I want to get serious making a public statement that I belong to Jesus, right? That, that's getting serious. You can't hide your, you know, a lot of Christians want to hide their Christianity, right? And we, we, we have the, the idea that we want to be public. Well, as we take God seriously, he takes us seriously and begins to use us and first baptize us with the Holy Spirit and use us for a lot of things for his glory. All right, well, back to John. Now, Again, they said to John, you know, who are you? What gives you the right to be baptizing anybody? And John said in verse 26, look, I baptize with water. Okay, no big deal. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. So that's the interrogation of the Jews. And it brings us to our second main point, the introduction of John. First of all, John presents Jesus as the Lamb of God. Verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, folks, that's as far as we're going. You want to know why? That's the whole Bible wrapped up in that one statement. I'll show you what I mean at the end of the study. This is what the Bible was written for, okay? This is the Word of God put into one simple, all-encompassing statement. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, let me just say this. The Jewish people were very familiar with the concept of lambs and other animals being sacrificed for sin. I mean, every year at Passover, uh, each family had to provide a lamb by which the lamb was then sacrificed for the family. Every day in Jewish culture, morning and evening, they had the morning and evening sacrifices 
where they would sacrifice a lamb in the morning, a lamb in the evening for the sins of Israel that were committed without realizing it. These were sins of, of ignorance. Uh, you know, the sins that you knew you committed, you had to bring the animal sacrifice to atone for. But a lot of times people committed sins, they didn't really realize what they had done, all right? And so to cover these sins of it, because they still had to be atoned for, all right? Remember Job, you know, righteous guy? And he's uh, Job chapter 1, and he's offering a sacrifice for his kids because he said, how do, maybe they sin without knowing it. I'm going to make sure they're covered. Well, that's the idea, okay? So every morning and evening, a lamb was sacrificed for the sins of the nation, sins of ignorance. And again, as I just said, all the other lambs throughout the year that people had to bring to uh, atone for their own sin, lambs that were sacrificed for them. But look, God had said, the soul that sins shall surely die. The soul that sins shall surely die. And yet under the Mosaic Covenant, God provided a sacrificial system whereby the blood of animals could be substituted for the guilty person to atone for their sins so that they themselves would not have to die. Many verses we could look at. I think one of the ones that stands out above them all, Leviticus 17, verse 11. Why don't you turn there? I mean, this is one you should uh, mark because there are those in the church today who don't believe in the blood of Christ atoning for our sins. You can get the study from Thursday, uh, Wednesday night. We talked about this in detail. They're ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is all about penal substitution, that a substitute was punished in our place. It's what the whole gospel is built on, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the innocent, sinless Lamb of God, was bruised for our iniquities and beaten for our transgressions, whipped, punished, crucified, that we might have forgiveness. That's, the, that's the, what the gospel's built on, penal substitution. But of course, it doesn't start, you know, in the New Testament, this idea, uh, way back in Leviticus. In fact, it goes back to Genesis 3, but I won't go there this morning. But Leviticus 17, verse 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you, God said, upon the altar to make atonement for the souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Now, guys, this found its highest fulfillment on the holiest and most sacred day of the year for the Jewish people, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur literally means day of covering. Without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement, there is no covering. Here's how it worked. On that day, people would gather in Jerusalem, and the priest would select two goats, both without spot or blemish. Perfect, all right? One goat was sacrificed, and its blood was sprinkled on the altar, okay, to atone for sins. The other one, the priest, the high priest, laid his hands on the head of that goat, confessing all the sins of the nation, basically, okay? And after the sins were transferred, you might say, from the people to the animal, which is what the idea, a priest would take the goat and would walk it down the Kidron Valley over the Mount of Olives and take it so far out into the wilderness that it would never find its way home, signifying their sins were now taken away. And the people rejoiced. The people cheered because their sins were now gone. Their sins had been removed far, far away, never to return. Well, that was a beautiful and powerful enactment every year. 
But as powerful and beautiful as it was, it didn't actually remove people's sins, and they knew that. They knew that. They knew that the blood of these animals would only be allowed by God to cover, temporarily cover their sins, but that they could never remove the stain of sin from their souls. They knew that. As the writer of the Hebrews explains in chapter 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Take it away completely. So when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he points to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, that doesn't just cover sins, but who takes sin away completely. Wow. It got everyone's attention. You are Jewish? Believe me. It got your attention. Here was one who had been prophesied would come not just to cover sins, but to take them away completely. In fact, guys, this became the heart of the gospel message um, stated throughout the entire New Testament. Uh, I'll just have you turn to Ephesians 1, looking at verse 7, because this became the heart of the gospel message. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul makes a statement, and he's not alone. Peter made a similar statement. Paul also in Colossians made a similar statement. But uh, he's talking about Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, let me just stop and talk about redemption for just a second. The idea behind redemption is to purchase and set free by paying a price. It spoke of a slave being redeemed out of slavery and set free. Of course, back then, they would redeem these slaves with money, the money of the day, which was gold or silver. However, when it came to the redemption of a human soul, well, gold and silver were unacceptable. The redemption of a human soul involved a price that no human being could pay. The psalmist mentions this in Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8. I'll read it to you. It says, None of them, no human being, can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly. You bet it is. It's so costly that no human person, no person could redeem the soul of another person. No money could do it. No money was sufficient to purchase it. It would require a blood payment, life for life. And not just any life dying for a guilty person. Uh, a parent couldn't say, I'm going to die for my child. Or a child couldn't say, I'm going to die for my mom or my dad. You couldn't die for a sibling or a best friend. It had to be the innocent dying for the guilty. Sinners can't die for sinners. It would take, it would take a blood sacrifice of someone who was worthy to die, to, to, to have their blood slain for the sin of another. And that, of course, was Jesus Christ. Peter acknowledged this in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, when Peter said, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Perfect, sinless is the idea. But Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Listen, the forgiveness of sins. Now, the word forgiveness basically means to send away. To send away. In fact, it was actually a legal term, which meant to repay or to cancel a debt or to grant a pardon, but really... The basic idea was one of forgiving a debt. You have to understand, 
that the Jews, in their mind, they saw all sin as a debt that they owed God. That's why they would bring the animal to God as a payment, which God would then have them kill and the blood would atone for their sin. But in the Jewish mind, all sin was a debt that they owed God. Jesus was the fulfillment, though, of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Again, he didn't just cover their sins. They knew, and I believe they, they knew this, that someone was going to come, a Redeemer, a Savior, who would somehow pay for their sins completely. They understood the sacrificial system was not, you know, never really took the stain of sin away. It allowed God to cover the sins temporarily so they could have fellowship, but it never really dealt with the problem of sin. But Jesus Christ, when he came, he actually, yeah, the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world, but he actually became the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. And I know, I love what uh, John said, that, you know, that, um, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of what, Israel? The world. Jesus Christ was the Savior of all mankind, not just the Jewish people. The Savior of all mankind, who took away the sins of the world? No, the sin. It's just a way of generalizing sin, all sin. Not individual sins, but all sin. Primarily the sin of Adam. Original sin, okay? Original sin primarily, but all other sins as well. Through the shedding of his own blood, Jesus Christ actually took the sins of the world upon his own head, you might say, and he carried them, listen, he carried them an infinite distance away from which they could never return. The psalmist alludes to this in Psalm 103, verse 12. He has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. That means infinity. Infinity. Remember I said a few minutes ago, that all of the Bible really is summed up in the concept of behold the Lamb. Behold. Warren Worsby said, this time he called Jesus the Lamb of God, speaking of John the Baptist, a title he would repeat the next day, John 1, verses 35 and 6. In one sense, the message of the Bible can be summed up in this title. The question in the Old Testament is, where is the Lamb? Now, that comes out of Genesis chapter 22, when God told Abraham to take his only begotten son, the one that he loved, and to go three-day journey to Mount Moriah, Calvary, and there offer him as a sacrifice, remember? So they get to Mount Moriah, and Abraham takes Isaac, who is about 33 years old at this time. He's not seven or eight like your Sunday school pictures depict. He's a grown man. He could easily have overpowered his aging, his aged father, which meant Isaac was a what? Willing sacrifice. But Isaac said, Father, we have the wood for the offering and the fire, but where is the lamb? That became the cry of the Old Testament. Where is the lamb? Words goes on to say in the four Gospels, the emphasis is, behold the lamb. Here he is. Here he is. God promised he was coming. Here he is. And after you have trusted in him, someday you're going to sing along with the heavenly choir, worthy is the Lamb. Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. 
The concept of Jesus being the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. This is, guys, the whole Bible, the theme of the entire Bible is redemption. Redemption from Genesis to Revelation. It's God's unfolding plan of redemption for mankind. At the heart of it is, where is the lamb? Here is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. I want to just end this morning by having you turn to Exodus 12. Because this is a subject we need to just spend a few more minutes on. And then we'll close. Some of you have heard me teach this in the past, so bear with me. I, I think it's one of the greatest passages in the Bible for what I'm about to tell you. But in Exodus 12, starting with verse 1, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, Now this is before they were released, of course, okay? This month shall be your beginning of, beginnings of, uh, the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Well, they had a secular calendar. And uh, it starts in our late September, early October with the Feast of Rosh Hashanah, the new year. But here, in the seventh month, God says, now this is going to become your first month of what? Of the religious calendar year, the Jews have two calendars. A secular calendar and now a religious calendar. The month of Nisan, became, the seventh month, became the first month. All right? The first month. Because something significant is about to happen, as you're going to see. Verse 3, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need, you shall, you shall make your count for the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep, uh, you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Verse twelve: For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over, hence the feast of Passover. I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." Did you notice the progression here? He says, a lamb, twice in verse 3, the lamb, twice in verse 4, and your lamb, once in verse 5. Now, guys, this happens to be how pretty much the whole world views the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Many believe that Jesus is a lamb. What does that mean? Well, they believe that Jesus is one of many roads that lead to God. He's a lamb. You got Muhammad's a lamb, maybe, and Buddha, Confucius, and whatever. But Jesus is a lamb, okay? One of many roads that lead to God, even though he himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, okay? But they say he's a lamb. Others believe that Jesus is the lamb. He is the lamb. 
They believe that Jesus really is the Son of God, the one and only Savior of the world, the only way to heaven. Why do they believe this? Because they probably grew up in church, went to Sunday school, want is whatever, and they know the gospel. And they believe that Jesus Christ is the Lamb that alone can get them into heaven, and yet they refuse to accept him. Why? Because even though they know the truth, they are too busy doing their own thing, living their own life, probably in sin, most of them. They don't want to stop living in sin to accept Christ, which they know they're going to have to make some changes. So even though they know the truth that Jesus is the Lamb, well, they refuse to receive him as their Savior, which brings us to the third and uh, final and most important point, I think. You must make, not just believe that Jesus Christ is the Lamb, you must make Jesus your Lamb if his blood is going to protect you from the judgment that is coming. Paul even said that Jesus was our Passover. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. In other words, Jesus in his earthly life didn't just observe the feast, he fulfilled the feast. People have asked, why did God only kill the firstborn of Egypt? I mean, you had a house full of sinners, we'll say. Why didn't God wipe everyone out in the house that didn't have the blood applied to the doorpost and lintel of their house? Why just the firstborn? Well, first of all, it's the mercy of God. But he was communicating a truth through that, right? Egypt is a type of the world. We are first, we're all firstborn in Adam. In Adam, all die, right? Our first birth, physically, we were born in Adam. The curse of Adam abides on all of us, original sin. And as Paul said, in Adam, all die. So we're all firstborn of the world. You don't become secondborn or born again until you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. At that time now, you are no longer a child of the curse. You have changed family. You're not even a member of Adam's family anymore, the Adam's family. Uh, you know, that's a scary thing. But you're not even a member of Adam's family, really. Sure, you're physical, but you're now a child of God, a member of God's family, right? Jesus was the Lamb of God. Without spot, in other words, without original sin, without blemish, without acquired sin, never sinned during his life, who was killed and whose blood once applied to our heart, not our houses, but our hearts by faith, causes the judgment of God to what? Pass over us, right? I want to just leave you with this thought. When God told Moses to have the people kill a lamb, put its blood in a basin, mix it with some water, and take a hyssop branch, dip it in the bloody water, and what did he say? Did he say, dab it on the doorpost and lintel of your house? He said, strike the doorpost and lintel of your house. Think about it. There's the door, right? You got this blood water on dripping from the hyssop branch, and you strike the doorpost and lintel of the house. What sign is it going to make on that door? The sign of the cross. Even back then, of course, they had no clue what God was saying or what he was implying. But we looking back, we can see it clearly. That Jesus Christ was going to be the fulfillment of the Passover. He would be the Passover lamb who wouldn't just cover. He would take away the sin of the world. So when John says, behold, the lamb of God, now you understand how momentous that statement really was. It's the whole Bible. 
from start to finish, all Jesus is the Lamb. Where is the Lamb? Jesus is the Lamb. Someday worthy is the Lamb. We'll sing in heaven for all eternity. Worthy because He bought and paid for us. This, the redemption of our souls was so costly, it would take the sinless Son of God to die in our place. That's why forever we will sing, Worthy is the Lamb. He redeemed me. I was a lost, hopeless sinner, doomed to spend eternity in hell. But he in his great love came down, loved me so much he went to the cross and died in my place. And now by faith I take his blood and I apply it to the, the doorpost and lintel of my heart, if you will, which causes the judgment of God to pass over me, but not just the judgment to pass over me. It makes me a child of the king. I will forever live in the house of my father, with all the glory, with all the joy, with all the wonderful things he's promised forever. Wow. We will continue, God willing, next time, looking further. Uh, chapter didn't get very far, one verse. Uh, but we'll It's a big verse, though. Uh, looking at uh, some of the other things Jesus, John says, he presents Jesus, first of all, as the Lamb of God. We'll see he also presents him as the Son of God next time. Father... We thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you, Lord, that even though we were sinners, dead in trespasses and sins, hopeless, helpless, doomed to spend eternity in hell apart from you, yet because of your great love were with you, loved us, you sent your Son who became our sacrifice, the one who died in our place. And now, Lord, his blood has not only washed us of our sins, it's guaranteed us a place in your family, in your kingdom, in heaven forever. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word as we continue through the Gospel of John. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.